the book of Judges, chapter 9, is returning there. Uh, just remember that some of you come on Sunday evenings and you're not here on Sunday morning. That's great. We've got a marriage seminar coming up or conference this coming weekend. There's a flyer that looks like this out on the information counter. Make sure that you are aware of that and prayerfully consider coming out for what we think is going to be a wonderful Friday night and uh, Saturday. Sunday nights we go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and we find ourselves here in uh, chapter 9. Let me get rid of some paper here. Chapter 9 of the book of Judges. Got the stopwatch started. There we go. Okay. Now, when we come into chapter 9, we are introduced to a man by the name of Abimelech. And he is not universally known, but he is commonly known as the Bramble King. And when... We, you're reading along through the book of Judges, and here we deal with Gideon, and then uh, and, and after this chapter 9 incident here uh, with Abimelech, we continue on with the Judges, and sometimes there can be a tendency in reading it and thinking, what, who in the world is this Abimelech, and is he one of the Judges? It certainly doesn't seem like he could be one of the Judges, given his, his character, and so what, he, what is he about? And what chapter 9 basically is, is just a record that God kind of interjects, it's a historical, goes right in with the whole historical account and the whole sequence of events, but to give us a glimpse at the wickedness of even his people during this period of the judges. It's one thing to have the preacher get up or read a book about the time of the judges and say these, they were you know, terrible, they didn't walk with God, they left God, they went after their own devices. And then, and then it, here in chapter 9 and then later in the book he gives us some very graphic glimpses of where not the pagan world went, but where his people went and what they were capable of if they stopped walking with him. What all of us are capable of apart from, from the Lord, in, to one degree or another. And so it really is one of the darkest events in the history uh, of the children of Israel during the period of the judges. Then Abimelech, we're told, the son of Jerubbabel, which is uh, Gideon, he went to Shechem to his mother's brothers. And he spoke with them, and with all the family of the house of his mother's father, saying, we remember that Abimelech, from chapter 8, verse 31, he was a kind of a, uh, he, he was a son of Gideon, but Gideon had multiple wives and uh, 70 sons, and uh, as if all of these wives was not enough, he really fell into a, a backslidden uh, carnal state in the last 30 years of his life. It was really kind of a terrible way for him to end. And as if all of these multiple wives weren't transgression enough against God's uh, standard, he also uh, took a concubine to himself from the city of Shechem. And in those days, a concubine was essentially kind of a uh, second-class wife. And so he would go to Shechem, involved himself physically with her. There was a child, Abimelech, that was born out of, out of that union. And because he was the son, Abimelech was the son of a concubine, his contact with Gideon during his life was probably nil. Uh, a child that was born to a concubine was typically left in the village or with the family of the mother, the concubine. 
So her city, her family would have become the greatest influence upon the child. The father really didn't engage himself with children that were born to, to concubines. And so he would have been raised by his mother. He would have been raised in the moral climate there uh, of, of Shechem. And because he was the son of a concubine, he would have had a much lower standing than any of the other 70 sons, of, uh, legitimate, so to speak, sons of, of, uh, of Gideon through those that he was uh, willing to marry. So we look at Gideon's life and we don't say that he is responsible for the actions of Abimelech, but certainly Abimelech wouldn't have been in human history without uh, some failure on, on Gideon's part. He goes to his uh, city, home city there of Shechem, and he spoke to his mother's brothers. He spoke with uh, his family of the house of his mother's uh, father, and, and so he, he said, please speak in the hearing of all of the men of Shechem. He wants an audience with all of the men of Shechem in order to offer a proposal to them. And here is the proposal that he offers. He said, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubbabal or Gideon reign over you, or that one reign over you, meaning himself, remember that I am your own flesh and bone. So he has the idea that because his father Gideon has died, even though Gideon did not, um, he refused to become a king over the people of Israel, he did evidently maintain a position of honor and oversight in the nation. So when he dies, in the mind of Abimelech, somebody's going to take that position. He doesn't have any idea, because he doesn't know anything about God of the Bible. His idea is that you can appoint yourself to this, and he doesn't realize his father was appointed by God to begin with. So he looks at the position, he likes, uh, you know, kind of the power that his father had. He likes the, the money and the resources that it produced. He liked the position that his dad had. And so he thinks in his mind that God's going to raise up the next judge or the next king out of, of Israel from one of these 70 sons. And so why, uh, why not crowd them to, to the front uh, and, and get a jump on, on the 70 legitimate sons and see if he can, he can land that position for himself. And so he floats the idea of becoming a ruler over the land as opposed to one of Gideon's uh, sons. Now, he's very careful about his uh, uh, early audience. All um, uh, election campaigns are. They go to friendly cities to begin their quest for power. So he begins in Shechem. Shechem is all, it's all family. And the dominant influence of Shechem at that time is not a Jewish influence, it is a Canaanite influence, as we're going to see a little bit later in the passage. So he comes to them and says basically, hey, here's the deal. He said, uh, I am a uh, half Jewish and I am half Canaanite. I'm half related to you. These 70 sons are 100% Jewish. And so who do you want to become the next king? It's just, it's pork barrel politics all over again. It's like, uh, if they get elected or somebody gets in that position, 
They're not going to bring anything home to Shechem. We're not going to get any bridges built. We're not going to be able to get any roads built or any of these kind of things. But if you get me in, into that position, then I'll make sure that Shechem really is the beneficiary of, uh, of uh, your, your support. And so, uh, like many, many politicians running for national office, uh, today he floats the idea of which would be better for you it's not what's the best for the country or anything like that but uh, they they sell themselves to people on the basis of what their election will mean concerning the connectedness of their district to influence and to wealth and to pork and rather than what's best for the whole country and so they really liked his proposal it made sense to them let's get some family into the office and his mother's brother spoke all these uh, words concerning him in the hearing of all of the men of Shechem, and their heart was inclined to follow Abimelech for the uh, lofty and noble reason of he is our brother. That is not a satisfactory qualification to be king, that he is a relative and will get something out of it. There has to be some character involved, and they're going to learn very, very painfully that lesson and so they said, he's our brother, count us in, he's who we want to be our next king. And so they gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal Berith uh, in order to help him get started on his election campaign, with which Abimelech then hired worthless and reckless men. That's putting it kindly. And they followed him. He just hired a bunch of thugs now to uh, run his campaign here. It's going to be a very strong-arm uh, campaign. And with the assistance of uh, these reckless and worthless men, he then went to his father's house, to Gideon's house at Ophrah, and he killed his brothers, the 70 sons of Jerubbabel, on one stone. We're talking about an execution, one right after the other, publicly. That's how cold this guy is. That's, this is who they're going to make the next king over Israel. Put them on the same stone, lined them up, off with their heads or however he did it, one after the other. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel, was left because he hid himself. And so Jotham, the youngest of the 70 uh, sons, survived because of his hiding himself. Now you would have thought that the reaction of the men of Shechem would have been horror. You did what? You went to Ophrah and you cut their head off and killed all 70 of them in order to secure the position of king for yourself? What kind of a monster have we chosen to follow? That's, that's the normal reaction. But that's not the reaction that occurred here. Notice in verse 6. And as a result of this, and all the men of Shechem gathered together all of Beth Milo, and they went and they made Abimelech king beside the terebinth tree at the pillar which was in Shechem. Should have caused the entire nation to rise up and execute Abimelech in line with the word of God. They've got a monster for a king now. Character counts. And what they're going to come to realize is that if this kind of person will do that kind of thing to someone else, when the time comes, he will do the very same thing 
to you because this is what he's made of. Character counts in a leader. Habakkuk says, Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime or by sin. And so they've really chosen very poorly. Jotham takes and having survived, uh, he goes then, verse 7, when it was told Jotham the whole, everything that had happened, he went and he stood on top of Mount Gerizim and he lifted up his voice and he cried out a parable to them. Now Shechem lies in a valley at the base of Mount Gerizim. So there is a place there for him to go out on a ledge there that faces Shechem, cry this parable out over the city so all of them could hear the parable and yet be a, a significant enough distance away from them that they couldn't catch him. And so he's got a captive audience, but that his, his safety isn't in jeopardy in laying out this uh, par- parable. It's the first parable, by the way, that's recorded in the Bible. And so this is what he declares to them. Listen to me, you men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. And, and uh, he's gonna, in all of this, he's going to ridicule his half-brother Abimelech by telling a parable that really likens him to being a bramble, a, a worthless thorn bush. Listen to me, you men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees went out, and we'll see it's cedar trees at the end of the parable. The trees went out, speaking of the men of Shechem, and they, they once went forth to anoint a king over them. They were looking for a king. And they said to the olive tree, which is a wonderful tree, they said, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, should I cease giving my oil with which they honor God and men to go sway over trees? So they asked the olive tree, which is a wonderful uh, tree, the source of valuable oil, and uh, the olive tree says, forget about it. I am doing what God has called me to do. I am too busy being what God has called me to be to leave this and become a king over you. So the olive tree declines. Usually, the most qualified people to hold an elected office or an office like a king is a person who doesn't want it. A person who has already proven themselves to be highly successful in other areas of life. And the only way that you can draw them into a position of power is if they can be convinced in some way that in holding that position they can do something good for God and good for the nation. But they will never take the position out of a motive of selfish ambition. So they come to him, and this olive tree has no ambition at all to be the king over Israel, so to speak. So when you hit somebody like an olive tree kind of candidate, and they say, I'm not interested in it. All right, now I'm doubly interested in you. Because you don't have selfish ambition in your heart like Abimelech had. So they struck out, and they approached then the fig tree. They said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Should I cease my sweetness and my good fruit to go sway over trees? He, 
he declines. He gives his reason. I'm the source of, of sweet fruit and I'm too busy doing what God has designed me to do. No thank you. And then the tree said to the vine, the grape, the grape vine, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, should I cease my new wine, which cheers both God and men to go sway over trees? I'm not interested in being a ruler over men. I'm just interested in being what God has called me to be, be fruitful in what God has called me to be. No thank you. So these three noble personages which in the, in the, when they're talking about the uh, fig tree, talking about the olive tree, talking about the grapevine, it's really a reference to uh, the 70 sons of, of uh, Gideon, any one of which would have been qualified to be the next king, except God wasn't interested in having a king at this time in their history. So they all said no. Now, we should know, when there in verse 13 where it talks about uh, the trees, uh, the vine saying then to the trees, uh, should I cease my new wine which cheers both God and men. It's not like God is up there uh, knocking away a, a bottle of wine every day. It's probably talking, one of the offerings that was offered to God under the Jewish law was a drink offering, and that involved wine that was being offered to the Lord. So he's saying, listen, this wine is involved in the worship of, law, of the Lord. I'm happy in what I'm doing. I'm not, uh, I'm not interested uh, in that. Well, they've struck out, and then all of the trees said to the bramble, you come and reign over us. Now, a bramble in that part of the world is basically a thorn bush. It grows out of the rocky, the, the sides of rocky cliffs and that kind of thing. And uh, what they would use the bramble for is they would, you know, pull it away and, and they would then uh, stack it up and use it for kindling to start fires out there in the wilderness. And so that's about what it was good for, to get yourself stuck on and uh, get a painful poke from it or uh, to use it for kindling. And so they approached this Bramble and a bramble was just a, a something that was absolutely worthless compared to all of these other other trees, and so they're seeking to make a leader out of a bramble bush, someone who is far less than what they were. You'd have the greater following the lesser. Now notice the response of the bramble uh, bush. The bramble then said to the trees. If in truth you anoint me as king over you, then come and take shelter in my shade. Excuse me? Bramble bushes don't offer shade to cedar trees. Again, there's a lot of this that's too much like our political process for me to be comfortable with. You got a bramble bush making promises to cedar trees as a part of an election campaign that if you elect me, you'll find shade under my branches. Impossible. A bramble bush couldn't offer shade to another bramble bush, let alone to a cedar of Lebanon. And so, but he's, you know, full of himself and certainly isn't lacking any, you know, kind of self-esteem or anything like that. Promises to to supply shade to all uh, of, of the trees. And so imagine, I mean, you've got proud Abimelech here, uh, hearing himself likened uh, to a bramble bush. Must have really uh, smote his pride. I, I read an article on Phil Jackson, the head coach of the Los Angeles Lakers. They're playing tonight, you know. Oh, you knew. Sorry about that. I hate L.A. 
athletic teams. Now let me qualify. I'm rooting for them in this series. Here's why. See the reaction? This is why you never go outside of the lines of the Bible in a Bible study. You're going to divide the crowd. I really like Pau Gasol. He plays basketball like we used to play basketball. Way back when it was a square ball made of rock. Anyway, I like him. And uh, I would actually probably see if I could go on eBay and get a hold of a, a jersey with Pau Gasol, except I would never in a hundred lifetimes wear a Laker jersey. Just would never, ever happen. So, got a little persecution complex. I'm a Northern California boy, and we've been beaten by those Southern California schools too long for me to be sympathetic toward them. Anyway, I know you'll still love me as a brother uh, on all of that. But I was reading an article on Phil Jackson, who's the coach of those dreaded Lakers, and uh, if he wins his Lakers, if they win this series, he's got to win one of the next three games, and if they, he wins, he'll surpass Red Auerbach, the famous coach of the Boston Celtics, in uh, uh, NBA titles. He'll have ten, and nobody's ever done that before in history. And uh, Phil Jackson, his father was a preacher. And as I was reading the article, one of the things that his father would uh, uh, tell Phil when he was growing up was, the bigger a man's head, the easier it will be to fill his shoes. That's good counsel, isn't it? I don't know what it has to do with our study tonight, but I've really enjoyed myself. That he's the pride, the pride of this, this man. Notice the threat that he makes against those. He says, listen, it, this, is, this is what I promise you if, if you allow me to, to reign uh, over you. And then he said, but if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. He threatens him. He promises, if you make me your king and then you ultimately reject me, I will do what bramble bushes do. I will start a forest fire that will end up destroying me and the cedars of Lebanon, all of, the, all of you people that are going to follow me. Everyone would have understood the message uh, completely because everyone understood what cedars were and everybody understood what bramble bushes were. If you cross me, if you reject me, I'll destroy you. If you turn on me, I will make sure we all go up in smoke together. And that's exactly what ultimately is going to happen. Reminds me of another bramble bush in human history, a man by the name of Adolf Hitler. He wasn't a German. He was an Austrian. And uh, he would not surrender to the Allied forces at the very end of the war. He is down in a bunker in the city of Berlin. The Russians are coming in from the east. They are just wiping out everything in their path. The Allies, the U.S. military is coming in from the west and he takes and he puts his forces against the Allied forces out there and he makes them take these neighborhoods, one neighborhood at a time, if you ever want to read a book that's just so sad, Anthony Beaver writes a book and it's called Berlin on just a horror of war related to civilian population. Never read anything like it. Terrible. And his leaders were coming to Hitler down in that bunker and saying, listen, they have destroyed Germany. 
They have destroyed Berlin. There is nothing left to fight for. You're down in this bunker. You don't know what's happening out there. Surrender. There's no use in continuing the battle. You know what Hitler's response was to it when he found out about the inevitable defeat of, of Germany in that war? He blamed the German people for the failure. And he declared that it occurred because the German people were not strong enough as a people. And thus they'd shown themselves unworthy for victory. Talk about a bramble. Unspeakably horrible bramble. Fifty million people dead in World War II casualties. And he was unwilling to the final days to take any responsibility for it. You know the thing that's always interesting to me in any kind of a study or reading of history related to Adolf Hitler is to realize that there is a greater and more destructive bramble on the way in human history. And he is called the Antichrist who will seduce the entire world to follow him and bring worldwide destruction down on the head of the world when, when he does that. Who we make our kings in life is a significant decision because very often a country, a nation, will follow their end and share it with them. And how wonderful it is to me tonight and to you to realize that the king that we love and the king that we serve is not a bramble king. The Bible says he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And we will also share his end one day in the fullness of the glory of heaven. Now the whole point of Jotham's parable is that they have, in making Abimelech their king, the men of Shechem have made a bramble, a worthless man, their king. And that he's going to end up being the destruction of, of all of you. You're going to, you'll be the death of one another. You're going to end up destroying uh, one another. And I think that history has borne out the fact that people who, typically people who desire a position of great influence o over other people for the sake of self-promotion, usually end up doing great damage. Only... In general, only worthless people seek to lord it over others. And worthy people, olive trees, fig trees, grape vines, are too busy and useful tasks to seek those kind of places of authority. The best candidates are usually already busy and successful in some other field. It doesn't mean... That good people cannot seek elected office. doesn't mean that at all. But when they do, it will be for the sake of advancing a godly agenda and for the sake of doing good for people and not for the sake of self-promotion. Any candidate running for public office should be examined for which kind of person that they are before they're elected. And it's insane to turn over a city, much less a country, to someone who doesn't pass that test. I'm not talking about our current situation, by the way, for those of you who might be thinking that you really run the risk of electing a bramble king.
And so he speaks then, Now therefore, if you have acted in truth and sincerity in making Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubbabel and his house and have done to him as he deserves, if you've treated my father and you've treated his, his children, the, my father who fought for you, he risked his life and he delivered you out of the hand of Midian, if, if the right thing to repay all of that favor was in killing all of his boys on one stone in his hometown then God bless you, have a great life. If then you have acted, or, uh, but if you have risen up against my father's house this day and killed his seventy sons on one stone and made Abimelech the son of his female servant king over the men of Shechem because he's your brother, an unworthy motive, if then you've acted in truth and sincerity with Zerubbabel and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, then let fire. If you've dealt deceitfully and terribly with, with my father and with his sons, then let fire come from Abimelech, the, the, uh, the, the, the bush, and devour the men of Shechem and Beth Milo and let fire come from the men of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. May you destroy one another. He pronounces a curse on them. Jotham knew they weren't going to be excited about this parable. So for his own safety he ran away and he fled. And he went to Beer and dwelt there for fear of Abimelech, his brother. And after Abimelech had reigned over Israel for three years. Now that's... A, uh, amazing here. Um, Abimelech becomes king over Israel, at least that part of Israel, and he reigns for three years. You're just gonna, you just look at that and go, how could God allow that to happen? God should have fed him his lunch in 48 hours. But he reigns for three years. It's funny. God, God's funny. He's usually, he's usually knocking half a dozen things out all at once. We just see one little thing that ought to just... Take care of that God, I'm telling you. you just and the Lord just looks at it and says, Listen, if you give me a little time, because in this situation, I'm not just upset with Abimelech. I'm upset with the men of Shechem. And I am also interested in teaching human history a lesson about, number one, being this kind of a king, and number two, about supporting this kind of a king, that I want to be in a part of this book for all of, all of history. And so God wasn't going to just allow a, wipe out Abimelech. He wanted to teach the people of Shechem and the children of Israel a lesson in all of this. And sometimes he can take a little longer to do that than, than we're willing to give him. The old uh, saying, though the mills of God grind slowly, yet they grind exceedingly small or fine. Nobody's getting away with anything in this world. Nobody. God sees it all. He watches all of it. And, and, and He is going to judge every single bit of it. But He will deal with it in His time. And it's important for us to remember that. Especially as we watch the world waxing worse and worse. We see the atrocities becoming greater and greater and more frequent. We just think, man, everybody's just getting away with it. Nobody's getting away with nothing. Not in this life and not in the life to come. God knows how to judge and, and He's to be trusted with that. And we need to be patient 
and give him time. No plan that you could have come up with for the judgment of Abimelech could have been better than what God came up with here as we're going to read in just a moment. And, and so it was well worth the three years to wait on him. God sent a spirit of ill will between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. Uh-oh. So we got, you're going to fall on the poles now. So God, God again, he's, he is sovereign. He is almighty. He, he, there, he can just do anything and not even break a sweat. And when you've got people like this supporting a king like that, it doesn't take much to make that unstable. Those, those, you're talking about fickle people on both ends of that thing. So God just allows a little spirit of ill will to come, mistrust between one another, to start to not like one another. And the whole thing is going to unravel. You don't need to bring in any snipers or, or anything like that. Just send a spirit of ill will between Abimelech and there'll be the destruction of one another. And the men of Shechem, and the men of Shechem dwelt treacherously with Abimelech. And this was their treacher, treachery. That the crime done to the seventy, and this, it was done for this reason, that the crime done to the seventy sons of Jerubbabel might be settled, and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who aided him in the killing of his brothers. And the men of Shechem set uh, men in ambush against Abimelech on the tops of the mountains, and they robbed all who passed by them along the way, and it was told Abimelech. So there's a main trade route that headed through um, Shechem, and so they began to hide in the mountains like bandits, and whenever people were traveling along that trade route, they would go in and they would rob the people of their goods. And that did a couple of things that was uh, difficult for Abimelech. Number one, it robbed him of tax and tribute that he would tax these caravans, and so he was losing money. The second thing that it would have done is it would have really smitten his pride, and it would have communicated to the rest of the world that he's not as strong a leader as he thinks he is. He can't even control his own area, his own hometown within the land. And so uh, this is what they were doing, and it, it really reflected badly on him and word got to Abimelech that these people of your own city are now doing this. Now Gaal the son of Ebed he came with his brothers and he went over to Shechem so he apparently has a kind of a good name in the city of Shechem and the men of Shechem put their confidence in him and so they shift their allegiance away from Abimelech now uh, to Gaal and so they went into the fields they gathered some grapes from their vineyards they trod on them they made marriage and they went into the house of their God and they ate and drank and they cursed Abimelech. So it was a, a curse Abimelech party. You've heard of Tupperware parties and those kind of things. This is what they just got together and uh, they, they got themselves drunk on all this wine that they had made up and alcohol and then they just began to openly uh, in the city begin to curse Abimelech and the ruler that he was. And then Gaal, the son of Ebed, and he's... He's all liquored up now, as they used to say. And uh, he said, Who is Abimelech? And who is Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbabel? And is not Zabel his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem, but why should we serve him? So you remember she uh, uh, Abimelech came to the men of Shechem and said, Hey, listen, uh, you want full-blood Jews over here? Becoming the next king, I'm half Jew and I'm half 
Canaanite. I'm half Shechemite here. So you better glom on. He's using race in, the, in politics. You better glom on to the Shechem guy here or you're going to end up with nothing. So uh, Gaal comes in and one-ups him. Comes in and says, hey, Abimelech's half Jew and half Canaanite. What are we doing following half Jew? So why don't we follow the house of the men of Hamor, who's all Canaanite? And, and this, this played with the, with the population. Why should we serve uh, him, anyone less than a full-blooded one of our people? If only, he cried out, this people were under my authority. If only I were the king, then I would remove Abimelech. And so he said to Abimelech, you know, Abimelech's not there, but he cries out, increase your army and come out. And so there's the old saying, ah, don't listen to him, it's just the liquor talking. And uh, that's exactly what's happening. He's, he's drunk and uh, alcohol make you brave when you shouldn't be brave or even if you are brave, you shouldn't be that brave because he's, he's going to uh, end up dying at the end of this thing. So he's drunk and, and he starts to say these things. Well, when you're drunk, you're not careful about where you say everything. And so he's cursing Abimelech and he's even speaking badly about Zabel, verse 30, who was the ruler of the city of Shechem and no doubt an officer of Abimelech. He heard the words of Gaal, the son of Ebed, and his anger was aroused. I mean, he really got upset with this whole rebellion that he's leading against his his king, and so he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly saying, Take note, you better look out, man, we've got trouble here. All the son of Ebed and his brothers have come to Shechem, and here they are, and they're fortifying the city against you. You've got a full-blown revolution on your hands, and now, therefore, get up by night. Come this very night, you and the people who are with you, and lie in wait in the field. And the idea uh, is that as soon as it shall be, as soon as the sun rises in the morning, you rise up early, rush upon the city, and when he and the people who are with him come out against you, then you may do to them as you find opportunity. Basically, he's saying, get over here. They're drunk as can be. And when they wake up in the morning, they're not going to be in any condition to fight. Get over here and wipe them out. And so Abimelech and all the people who were with him rose at night. They lay in wait against Shechem in four companies. They followed the counsel of uh, Zabel. And then when Gaal the son of Ebed went out and he stood at the entrance of the city gate, Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from lying in wait. So he's got this kind of a, a, mount, a hill out in front of him, kind of a low mountain, and it's covered with brush and all kinds of things. And he looks out there, and as soon as they see uh, Gaal there, they begin to move. But it, initially, when Gaal looks at it, he thinks the bushes are moving. Remember, he's had a tough night last night on things. So he's, he's not trusting his senses at the moment. And uh, so he looked and he said to Zebul, uh, look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. This is, we're, we're, this is unusual. It looks like we're being attacked. And Zebul said to him, oh, all you're seeing are the shadows of the mountains as if they were men. You just, you got a hangover. And so Gaal spoke again and said, see, people are coming down from the center of the land. This is organized. And another company is uh, coming in from the diviner's terebinth tree. We've got real problems here. And then Zebul said to him, Where indeed is your mouth now? With which you spoke and said, Who is Abimelech that we should serve him? Are not 
These the people whom you despised. You called Abimelech out, wanted to fight his army. All right, put up or shut up. Go out, if you will, and uh, fight with them now. Hey, listen. It's not California in 2009. They're tough. It's the way to talk back then. I don't know if they talk like this back anyway, but we'll stop, I'll stop that as soon as I can. So Gaal went out, leading the men of Shechem. It's sad when you crack yourself up with your stupidity, isn't it? So Gaal went out, leading the men of Shechem, and he fought with Abimelech. So he, he, you know, he may not have had much sense, but you've got to give him credit for being brave. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled from him. And many fell wounded to the very entrance of the gate. So they rushed out of the city of Shechem to engage Abimelech and his forces. They were beat so decisively, they began to retreat and run for the gate to get back into the city. But they were cut down before they could get to the gate. And then Abimelech set, uh, dwelt at uh, Aruma and Zebul. He then left. To, he, he conquered the larger part of the force. He went back to where he was hanging out. And Zebul, his governor, then drove out Gaal and his brothers, fi- finished cleansing the city of Shechem of, of the insurrectionists so that they would not dwell in uh, Shechem. And then it came to pass on the next day that the people went out into the field and it was uh, told Abimelech that this had happened. Now what kind of happens here in this situation, and it's uh, uh, very interesting, not everyone in the city of Shechem was following uh, Gaal. There were people who were innocent in there and uh, so... They, uh, there were some that didn't follow him, so they assumed, all right, Gaal and his forces have been killed. What a rotten, terrible day. Now we can just forget the whole episode. So the next morning, these uh, Shechemite farmers head out into their fields just to begin to work their farms. And they're not realizing that in the eyes of Abimelech, everyone in Shechem is suspect. Uh, these kind of leaders are paranoid. So uh, they think, all right, he's going to be able to differentiate between rebels and people that are just trying to make it through all of this political craziness. And, uh, but in, in Abimelech's eyes, the whole town is guilty of treason. And, and so, he took, so he took his people, divided them into three companies, and lay in wait in the field, and he looked, and there were the people coming out of the city. They're not armed or anything. They're just farmers going out to work the fields. And he rose up against them, and he attacked them. And then Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward, stood at the entrance of the gate of the city and the other two companies were uh, rushed upon all who were in the fields and they killed them and so Abimelech fought against the city all that day he took the city and killed the people who were in it and he demolished the city and he sowed it with salt and so he just attacks these unarmed farmers out in the middle of things but what in the world do you expect from a man who will in cold blood, kill 69 of his half-brothers on one stone in their hometown. You think a guy just turns that on and turns that off? And that there won't come a day when you cross him, and the same thing that he's done over here, which you think would never happen to you, you catch him on a bad day, and the same thing does happen to you. Again, character counts. And everyone, but especially 
in, in leaders. So he wipes out the city, sowed it with salt, and that was just a symbolic action that was, you throw salt down on vegetation, it kills the vegetation, and the idea was, may this city never be rebuilt again. And that was his desire upon, uh, uh, upon wiping it out, that it would remain uh, uh, barren forever. And then the, we're told in verse 46 that uh, some insights into the battle, that some of the men in the city, when, uh, see, now when all of the men of the tower of Shechem had heard that, they entered and the stronghold of the temple of the god Berith. So within the city of Shechem, as, as this city is being taken one layer at a time, everyone who survives runs to the temple of Baal Berith. They apparently had a very large tower. It could accommodate a thousand people because that's how many people are going to die inside of it. They all run in there for their lives. And they probably figure that Abimelech, this is a religious site, so maybe Abimelech will respect our lives and not destroy a religious site. They, don't, they have completely misunderstood who they've made their king. And it was told Abimelech that all the men of the Tower of Shechem were gathered together. And then Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, he and all the people who were with him. Abimelech took an axe in his hand. He cut down a very large a branch from the trees, put it on his shoulder. He said to the people who are with him, just do the same thing that I have, just grab some brush. And so each of the people likewise cut down his own bow and, uh, and followed Abimelech. They put it up against the base of that stronghold of that tower and they set the stronghold on fire above them so that all of the people of the tower of Shechem died, about a thousand men and women. And so uh, he mounds that brush up against the base of the, of the tower, sets it on fire, and he basically turns the tower into a clay oven. He bakes all of these people alive inside of, uh, of, of that uh, tower. Imagine the screaming, the oh, and I mean, he's just completely heartless, this guy. And then Abimelech went to Thebes, and apparently Thebes must have had some kind of a uh, you know, civil relationship with Shechem, at least in Abimelech's mind, and so he's going to go over there and, and uh, whoop them also. So he went to Thebes and he encamped against Thebes and he took the city. But again, there was a strong tower in the city and all the men and the women and, and all the people of the city, they fled there as a last place of refuge. They shut themselves in and they went up to the top of the tower. So it gets far away from this cold-blooded murder as they could. And so Abimelech came as far as the tower and he fought against it. So he conquered the city right to the tower. He drew near to the door of the tower, the entrance. It was probably wood. And he's going to put some brush up against that wood, set it on fire, destroy the door. It would gain his, his uh, military, would gain access to the, to the tower and they could kill the people. But while he's trying to do this whole thing and he gets up close to it, a certain woman, Mrs. McGillicuddy in the Talmud, a certain woman, this great big guy in his own eyes, the big king and the, all the can, bramble bush that can offer shade to, you know, cedars of Lebanon. And he's just going to die at the hands of an anonymous woman with a, something from her kitchen. How humbling for the macho bramble king. 
God cracks me up. It just shows you, I mean, how control he is of, of these things. So he comes up and he's right up against the base and there's a certain woman. She's up on the top. She's, she's good. She's a good aim. She drops an upper millstone on Abimelech's head, crushed his skull. Now millstone was basically had a lower millstone and an upper millstone. We're just talking about where you grind your wheat or your grain uh, for your, your daily meals. And the upper uh, millstone could be flat or it could be kind of a cylinder shape, but it was good size, could weigh uh, 20 to 30 pounds. And so she gets this thing, comes over the edge, looks down at him and lets the thing go and uh, never knew what hit him. He kind of did because he's what follows on the thing, but he knows he's dead. I mean, whatever kind of a crack he heard, he knew this was... I'm sorry, this is the way I see it. I... I I put myself right in the scene here a little bit, more graphic than you want to know. Have a nice night's sleep. And uh, so she drops it, crushed his skull. He has enough time, though. I mean, here he is, he's dying, a good-for-nothing dying. And he quickly call, he called quickly to uh, the young man, his armor-bearer, and he said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest men say of me, A woman killed him. He is one of the worst human beings in human history. He's a monster. I mean, he is a monster every way you want to look at him. He's so goofed up in his head. I mean, what we are apart from God, or at least capable of, or at least what I'm capable of. <laughs> and some of you, he's crazy. And he thinks that whether his armor bearer kills him or not is going to make some difference on how the history remembers him. Now this isn't going to look good that I got killed by a woman. It's not going to look good no matter what he did. It's just crazy how people think. And so this is his concern. You know, what are people going to think about me at the moment? No concern for eternity or, or how God views them. Just crazy way to view things. And so his, his young man, his armor bearer, obediently thrust him through and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, they departed every man to his place. And thus God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech. God was working. Nobody's getting away with nothing in this world. This wickedness will be judged either in this life or the life to come. But God will judge it. And so thus, in other words, in this way, God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father by killing his 70 brothers. The people of Israel would not rise up and enforce the standard of the law of Moses on this king for his murder. So God said, I'll rise up and I will do it by my own means. And all of the evil of the men of Shechem, God returned on their own heads. So God was not only wanting to judge Abimelech, but he wanted to judge Abimelech in a way that he would also judge the wickedness of his accomplices, Abimelech's accomplices, that put him in power and sustained him in power to be the monster that he was. And on them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel, or Gideon. Remember he had said, may you be the destruction of one another 
if you have cold-blooded murdered the sons of Gideon. And so they uh, did, and so they were judged for having done it. Let me close this before we head into communion by reading uh, a psalm to you. And you could turn with me uh, on it. Uh, Psalm 37. You know, when you read about a guy like Abimelech, and then you're going to head into the Lord's Supper, you feel like you need a shower or something, right? I mean, the, the washing of water by the Word. And we get the lessons of the passage. But in this whole theme of of wickedness and the wicked and all. Psalm 37 is really good. So many of you, it's a friend of yours, but it's going to need to be a friend of all of ours as, as the world continues to kind of unravel before our very eyes. And it's important for us to realize that as we're walking in, in the middle of human history, God is in control. He is not forcing people to do these wicked things. But he is in control and he knows how to overrule these things toward his God-appointed ends for human history. Psalm 37, do not fret because of evildoers. Allow me to take a deep breath and enjoy that. Nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he will bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently on him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait on the Lord they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. The wicked plots against the just, and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and have bent their bow to cast down the poor and needy, to slay those who are of upright conduct. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. A little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time, and in the days of famine they shall be satisfied. But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord, like the, sple the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish into smoke. They shall vanish away. The wicked borrows and does not repay, but the righteous shows mercy and gives. In other words, we don't let them influence how we live. For those... Uh, blessed by him shall inherit the earth, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his right hand. I've been young, 
and now I'm old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. He is ever merciful and lends, and his descendants are blessed. Depart from evil and do good, and dwell forevermore, for the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom, and his tongue, ta tongue talks of justice the law of his God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. The wicked watches the righteous and seeks to slay him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand nor condemn him when he is judged. Wait on the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a native green tree. Yet he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Indeed, I sought him, but he could not be found. Mark the blameless man. Observe the upright, for the future of that man is peace. But the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. And the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in Him. Beautiful psalm. Tonight as we partake of communion, the bread a symbol of Jesus' body and the cup a symbol of His blood. As the worship team comes forward now and the men who are going to serve worship, I just want us, as we just begin to contemplate on His his body broken for us and for our salvation to just celebrate our King.